This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about, well, what we always talk about in this podcast, the coronavirus pandemic. Much of the focus has been on the number of cases and, of course, deaths. But what hasn't been discussed too much is what happens to people who have recovered. Some of them say the experience has been miserable, left them with long-term health problems, shows how dangerous this virus can be. So we will hear from a nurse who's treated some of these struggling patients, the the long-termers. Yeah, and remember when Dr. Doctors and health officials warned us back in March that they were short of personal protective equipment. They were able to weather that storm, but now the dark clouds, well, they're appearing again. President Trump pushing for these schools to reopen. How do teachers feel about us? We will hear from one. If some states where the virus is surging order more shutdowns, can small businesses hang on? We'll try to answer that question. How about positive thinking? Will the power of positive thinking save some people from falling into a pandemic depression? We have some tips on how to try and stay a little rosier than we are right now. Yeah, I could use that. (laughs) Let's start with the virus and long-term damage. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Krista Shore, clinical nurse scientist at Cooper Medical Center in New Jersey, who explained what she says and sees every day on the front lines. Most patients will tell you that They most often experience physical issues with muscle weakness, fatigue, and shortness of breath. And with the COVID patients, a large majority of these patients were healthy, you know, healthy individuals prior to coming down with this illness. So this is really challenging. Uh, There are a large majority of the patients did not even have any chronic health conditions. So to experience COVID-19 and leave the hospital with severe muscle wasting um, and have shortness of breath, is really uh, challenging for for most patients. A large majority of the patients, the older patients, likely would require a short stay at a rehab facility. And some patients who have difficulty weaning off the ventilator may actually require a stay at a long-term ventilator facility. Are we and are we seeing this kind of across the board? I mean, uh, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the higher risk of older people, people with the with other medical conditions they're dealing with, but from things that I've read and seen, it seems like we're seeing some of the younger people that come down with COVID, they're also having these long-term where they're not quite ever going to be the same. Are, are you seeing it across the age spectrum or is it heavily weighted to older patients? No, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, we've seen patients in their 20s um, all the way to their 90s. But those that seem to be impacted the most are uh, people that are in their 50s, uh, mid-50s, late 50s, early 60s. And they may only have like one chronic health condition or otherwise healthy, but they experience a shortness of breath that they've never experienced in their life. All of a sudden, it just takes their breath away and they can't function. But they may have been experiencing some fatigue uh, prior to arriving at the hospital, but they weren't really sure what was happening. So when they come to us, they're in severe respiratory distress and requiring uh, mechanical ventilation support. The time that you're on the ventilator, the longer you're on a ventilator, the longer that you're in the ICU, that really impacts your recovery process. So as a clinician, the goal is to try to decrease the amount of time that patients are on the ventilator 
and to decrease the number of complications that a patient would have. And that helps with long-term outcomes. Are we starting to see any, I don't know if clues is the right word, but any, any data that shows why certain people have these long-term problems and other people don't? Are, are, are any pieces starting to be put together or are we still way too early to, to, to start kind of drawing conclusions or getting a feel for who might really have the long-term problems and who won't? I think we, you're, you're right on that we are uh, still learning. We're, we're still learning about the disease itself. I mean, it really caught most clinicians off guard. It's not something that we've ever seen before. But as far as the complications and the long-term, it's really yet to be seen. And we were, we're still admitting patients to the hospital you know, every day. It's not as severe as the number of admissions, but we're still learning. I mean, it was March for most hospitals in our area that saw their first patient. And we're only three months from that point. So as clinicians, they were so busy taking care of the patients and learning to deliver the best possible care. We haven't able, been able to really dig into the data at this point to figure out you know, where patients were placed and how they're doing currently. I think if you have, if the facilities have a support group, we'll certainly be able to learn quite a bit from patients in that manner. I was fortunate enough to call some of the family members uh, because this actually affects the family members as well. So, you know, when the patients are discharged home, uh, you can imagine that they have weakness where, you know, they may even have difficulty bathing um, or showering uh, alone. So it really puts a significant burden not only on the patient, uh, but the caregivers as well. For a, a virus, a coronavirus, to have this type of impact on the human body, I mean, obviously, it's a pandemic, it's a new virus, but had to... Because I, as a layman and someone who's been lucky to not have a lot of health problems, I look at getting sick from a virus very linear. I'm healthy. I don't feel well. I recover. It's over. How unusual is it to have a virus that attacks in this many different ways, ways leaves people with this many problems in, in certain cases? How unusual is this? It's extremely unusual. I mean, this is not something that we're accustomed to. We deal with severe infections all the time, and we're able to identify it and treat it, whether it need, you know there's surgical intervention or antibiotics, and we can kind of you know proceed down the course and at least have an idea what the next step is going to be, if the patient is going to recover or have a significant decline. In this particular disease process with COVID, not one patient has been the same. Every patient is different. And it was, you know, it's really challenging to put all the pieces together and learn why even um, some races and ethnic groups are presenting more often with a more severe disease. Again, these are things that we're all going to learn over the next couple months. There are a number of researchers with large databases that will be able to give us this additional information. But to be quite honest, there was no specific pattern that we could determine who was going to progress, you know, and, and get worse and require an ICU stay. Um, and some patients just came into the hospital with symptoms and were discharged the next day. And other patients were, were in the hospital for months. So, again, it, it's just it's very, very difficult to figure out why some patients respond in, 
in positive ways and other patients decline quite quickly. We might be back to where we started when it comes to personal protective equipment for hospital workers and first responders. They're warning once again that there is a shortage. This comes as more people are ending up in the hospital. So how do we solve this problem? With us is Zenny Cortez, registered nurse, president of the California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. Zenny, how did this happen again? Um, I'm really sad to say that this is the same conversation that we had in the spring. And again, unfortunately, it still is the conversation. As we come into our second surge, we still do not have the proper and the optimum personal protective equipment that we have been asking for in the spring. And now they're saying that the stockpile is really dwindling and we need to start reusing decontaminated masks. And yesterday, even the head of Trump's COVID task force, Vice President Pence, had made an announcement that healthcare workers need to start reusing their PPE. So it's so disheartening and so frustrating for all of us frontline workers because if we are not protected, our patients are not protected. Now, am I wrong or wasn't there a time when California was was giving some of the stuff, masks and all that, to other places because we had enough? Or, or am I mistaken about that? I think what was be- being given away was not the hospital-grade masks because there are different types of masks on different levels. And so what I understood back then was the excess that we have here in California was not the hospital-grade. It was the industrial Uh, grade that was being uh, given away. What would have fixed this? Is it California trying to go out onto the marketplace and buy more, which I think the governor has been trying to do? Or is this like a Defense Production Act thing where the feds should have gotten together and said, we're all going to make these and we're going to make plenty of them? Right. Right. Early on, we have sent a letter to President Trump, to World Health Organization, to CDC, to OSHA, to please strengthen the guidance, first of all, on the spread and the transmission of the disease. And then at the same token, we have asked uh, President Trump to fully activate the Defense Production Act so that the industries locally would have produced the PPEs that we've been wanting and that we've been needing. But unfortunately, you know, our demand and our plea and our requests have fallen on deaf ears. And so here we are facing the second surge of this pandemic, and we are still not prepared. And we have lost so many lives, so many nurses, so many doctors, so many healthcare workers. And we say enough is enough. Our lives are valuable, too, because if we all die, who will be there for the patients? Zenny Cortez, registered nurse, president of the California Nurses Association and uh, National Nurses United. Schools around the country working on reopening next month and in September. They are getting a nudge from President Trump to do so while the virus isn't hitting kids very hard. It's the teachers and the staff. They're the ones most at risk. Yeah, they got to be there in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Becky Pringle, longtime middle school science teacher, vice president of the National Education Association. So, Becky, how do you navigate this uh, tricky situation of getting back in those classrooms? 
finally, uh, people are reaching out and asking educators not only how they feel about it, but asking them to use their professional expertise on how we could possibly reopen our schools safely. Because here's the thing, we have to do this right. Our kids' lives and their health and their learning is at stake. And for us to have these conversations and not be including the very people who will be charged with keeping our kids safe, making sure their learning continues, making sure, as you said, uh, the environment in, in which they're, they're working and learning is safe and clean and all of those things. No one wants to be back with our students more than educators. We miss them so much. You saw the amazing stories from all over this country with teachers having parades to go see their kids in their cars. They were driving up to houses so they could uh, check on some of the students who for those classes, uh, online classes. And so they want to be back, but they absolutely want to be uh, assured that they have a safe learning condition for their learning conditions for their students and safe working conditions for themselves. Let's take your, your science classroom then. Have, I'm sure you've thought of how it could <laughs> right. be done. So did you find a way? Right. So um, I, I taught in a rather large room because I had a science lab right in my room. So I had a uh, space in the front where you had desks that were together where I did my instruction and, and work with students. Um, um, and then in the back, they went, they went back to the back to do uh, their experiments. I could never teach that same way if we were following the CDC guidelines of, of being those, that, that distance of six feet apart. We could not do that. It would not be possible. I had 30 students in my si- middle school science class, which, let me tell you, was hard enough. Um, to keep their attention and yeah, keep I them bet. focused. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Just imagine that. Um, but now, trying to keep them safe and engaged in learning, you're talking about ensuring that we have enough teachers and other adults in that school to keep them safe. You're talking about setting up physical distance distancing that, by the way, takes time. And that's one of the things that we're talking about right now is, you know, as, as policymakers are debating when and whether and if, not necessarily talking to teachers, um, every day gets closer to that start day. Every day gets further away from them having the time to actually engage in the, just in the questions you're asking me. How can we possibly do this so they could come back and they can be safe and we can keep them safe? And then if they are not, what are we going to do? How are we going to make sure that we have enough school nurses to take care of students who get sick or adults who get sick? What are we going to do when the parents come up to school, as they always do, uh, to make sure that our school secretaries are safe? Because they are the first ones they they greet people coming from the outside. All of these things take time and they take resources to address, none of which, none of which our states and localities have right now. They're suffering. They're all suffering. And so we're depending on the federal government to do what's right and allocate the funding in the HEROES Act that the Congress passed last month. Becky Pringle, middle school science teacher, vice president, National Education Association. Bell's ringing for us, so we got to go. But Becky, thanks. With a surge of cases in parts of the country, many small businesses could have to close again. This comes as many are struggling to survive and recover from the first round. This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman. 
from the knxradio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about, well, what we always talk about in this podcast, the coronavirus pandemic. Much of the focus has been on the number of cases and, of course, deaths. But what hasn't been discussed too much is what happens to people who have recovered. Some of them say the experience has been miserable, left them with long-term health problems, shows how dangerous this virus can be. So we will hear from a nurse who's treated some of these struggling patients, the the long-termers. Yeah, and remember when doctors and health officials warned us back in March that they were short of personal protective equipment? They were able to weather that storm, but now the dark clouds, well, they're appearing again. President Trump pushing for the schools to reopen. How do teachers feel about us? We will hear from one. If some states where the virus is surging order more shutdowns, can small businesses hang on? We'll try to answer that question. How about positive thinking? Will the power of positive thinking save some people from falling into a pandemic depression? We have some tips on how to try and stay a little rosier than we are right now. Yeah, I could use that. (laughs) Let's start with the virus and long-term damage. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Krista Shore, clinical nurse scientist at Cooper Medical Center in New Jersey, who explained what she says and sees every day on the front lines. Most patients will tell you that They most often experience physical issues with muscle weakness, fatigue, and shortness of breath. And with the COVID patients, a large majority of these patients were healthy, you know, healthy individuals prior to coming down with this illness. So this is really challenging. Uh, There are a large majority of the patients did not even have any chronic health conditions. So to experience COVID-19 and leave the hospital with severe muscle wasting um, and have shortness of breath, is really uh, challenging for for most patients. A large majority of the patients, the older patients, likely would require a short stay at a rehab facility. And some patients who have difficulty weaning off the ventilator may actually require a stay at a long-term ventilator facility. Are we and are we seeing this kind of across the board? I mean, uh, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the higher risk of older people, people with the with other medical conditions they're dealing with, but From things that I've read and seen, it seems like we're seeing some of the younger people that come down with COVID, they're also having these long-term where they're not quite ever going to be the same. Are are you seeing it across the age spectrum, or is it heavily weighted to older patients? No, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, we've seen patients in their 20s um, all the way to their 90s. But those that seem to be impacted the most are uh, people that are in their 50s, uh, mid-50s, late 50s, early 60s. And they may only have like one chronic health condition or otherwise healthy, but they experience a shortness of breath that they've never experienced in their life. All of a sudden, it just takes their breath away and they can't function. But they may have been experiencing some fatigue uh, prior to arriving at the hospital, but they weren't really sure what was happening. So when they come to us, they're in severe respiratory distress and requiring uh, mechanical ventilation support. The time that you're on the ventilator, the longer you're on a ventilator, the longer that you're in the ICU, that really impacts your recovery process. So as a clinician, the goal is to try to decrease the amount of time that patients are on the ventilator and to decrease the number of complications that a patient would have. And that helps with long-term outcomes. Are we starting to see any, I don't know if clues is the right word, but any, any data that shows 
why certain people have these long-term problems and other people don't? Are, are, are any pieces starting to be put together or are we still way too early to, to, to start kind of drawing conclusions or getting a feel for who might really have the long-term problems and who won't? I think we, you're, you're right on that we are uh, still learning. We're, we're still learning about the disease itself. I mean, it really caught most clinicians off guard. It's not something that we've ever seen before. But as far as the complications and the long term, it's really yet to be seen. And we were, we're still admitting patients to the hospital, you know, every day. It's not as severe as the number of admissions, but we're still learning. I mean, it was March for most hospitals in our area that saw their first patient. And we're only three months from that point. So as clinicians, they were so busy taking care of the patients and learning to deliver the best possible care. We haven't able, been able to really dig into the data at this point to figure out you know, where patients were placed and how they're doing currently. I think if you have, if the facilities have a support group, we'll certainly be able to learn quite a bit from patients in that manner. I was fortunate enough to call some of the family members uh, because this actually affects the family members as well. So, you know, when the patients are discharged home, uh, you can imagine that they have weakness where, you know, they may even have difficulty bathing um, or showering uh, alone. So it really puts a significant burden not only on the patient, uh, but the caregivers as well. For a, a virus, a coronavirus, to have this type of impact on the human body, I mean, obviously, it's a pandemic, it's a new virus, but had to... Because I, as a layman and someone who's been lucky to not have a lot of health problems, I look at getting sick from a virus very linear. I'm healthy. I don't feel well. I recover. It's over. How unusual is it to have a virus that attacks in this many different ways, ways leaves people with this many problems in, in certain cases? How unusual is this? It's extremely unusual. I mean, this is not something that we're accustomed to. We deal with severe infections all the time, and we're able to identify it and treat it, whether it need, you know there's surgical intervention or antibiotics, and we can kind of you know proceed down the course and at least have an idea what the next step is going to be, if the patient is going to recover or have a significant decline. In this particular disease process with COVID, not one patient has been the same. Every patient is different. And it was, you know, it's really challenging to put all the pieces together and learn why even um, some races and ethnic groups are presenting more often with a more severe disease. Again, these are things that we're all going to learn over the next couple months. There are a number of researchers with large databases that will be able to give us this additional information. But to be quite honest, there was no specific pattern that we could determine who was going to progress, you know, and, and get worse and require an ICU stay. Um, and some patients just came into the hospital with symptoms and were discharged the next day. And other patients were, were in the hospital for months. So, again, it, it's just it's very, very difficult to figure out why some patients respond in, in positive ways and other patients decline quite quickly. We might be back to where we started when it comes to personal protective equipment for hospital workers and first responders. They're warning once again that there is a shortage. This comes 
as more people are ending up in the hospital. So how do we solve this problem? With us is Zenny Cortez, registered nurse, president of the California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. Zenny, how did this happen again? Um, I'm really sad to say that this is the same conversation that we had in the spring. And again, unfortunately, it still is a conversation. As we come into our second surge, we still do not have the proper and the optimum personal protective equipment that we have been asking for in the spring. And now they're saying that the stockpile is really dwindling and we need to start reusing decontaminated masks. And yesterday, even the head of Trump's COVID task force, Vice President Pence, had made an announcement that healthcare workers need to start reusing their PPE. So it's so disheartening and so frustrating for all of us frontline workers because if we are not protected, our patients are not protected. Now, am I wrong or wasn't there a time when California was was giving some of the stuff, masks and all that, to other places because we had enough? Or or am I mistaken about that? I think what was being given away was not the hospital-grade masks because there are different types of masks on different levels. And so what I understood back then was the excess that we have here in California was not the hospital-grade. It was the industrial uh, grade that was being uh, given away. What would have fixed this? Is it California trying to go out onto the marketplace and buy more, which I think the governor has been trying to do? Or is this like a Defense Production Act thing where the feds should have gotten together and said, we're all going to make these and we're going to make plenty of them? Right. right. Early on, we have sent a letter to President Trump, to World Health Organization, to CDC, to OSHA, to please strengthen the guidance, first of all, on the spread and the transmission of the disease. And then at the same token, we have asked uh, President Trump to fully activate the Defense Production Act so that the industries locally would have produced the PPEs that we've been wanting and that we've been needing. But unfortunately, you know, our demand and our plea and our requests have fallen on deaf ears. And so here we are facing the second surge of this pandemic, and we are still not prepared. And we have lost so many lives, so many nurses, so many doctors, so many healthcare workers. And we say enough is enough. Our lives are valuable, too, because if we all die, who will be there for the patients? Zenny Cortez, registered nurse, president of the California Nurses Association and uh, National Nurses United. Schools around the country working on reopening next month and in September. They are getting a nudge from President Trump to do so. While the virus isn't hitting kids very hard, it's the teachers and the staff. They're the ones most at risk. Yeah, they got to be there in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Becky Pringle, longtime middle school science teacher, vice president of the National Education Association. So, Becky, how do you navigate this uh, tricky situation of getting back in those classrooms? Finally, uh, people are reaching out and asking educators not only how they feel about it, but asking them to use their professional expertise 
on how we could possibly reopen our schools safely. Because here's the thing, we have to do this right. Our kids' lives and their health and their learning is at stake. And for us to have these conversations and not be including the very people who will be charged with keeping our kids safe, making sure their learning continues, making sure, as you said, uh, the environment in, in which they're, they're working and learning is safe and clean and all of those things. No one wants to be back with our students more than educators. We miss them so much. You saw the amazing stories from all over this country with teachers having parades to go see their kids in their cars. They were driving up to houses so they could uh, check on some of the students who for those classes, uh, online classes. And so they want to be back, but they absolutely want to be uh, assured that they have a safe learning condition for their learning conditions for their students and safe working conditions for themselves. Let's take your your science classroom then. I'm sure you've thought of how it (laughs) could be done. So did you find a way? Right. So um, I, I taught in a rather large room because I had a science lab right in my room. So I had a space in the front where you had desks that were together, where I did my instruction and and work with students. Um, um, And then in the back, they went went back to the back to do uh, their experiments. I could never teach that same way if we were following the CDC guidelines of of being those that that distance of six feet apart we could not do that it would not be possible i had 30 students in my middle school science class which let me tell you was hard enough um uh, to keep their attention and keep them focused (laughs) (laughs) just imagine that um but now trying to keep them safe and engaged in learning you're talking about ensuring that we have enough teachers and other adults in that school to keep them safe. You're talking about setting up physical distance distancing that, by the way, takes time. And that's one of the things that we're talking about right now is, you know, as, as policymakers are debating when and whether and if, not necessarily talking to teachers, um, every day gets closer to that start day. Every day gets further away from them having the time to actually engage in the just in the questions you're asking me, how can we possibly do this so they could come back and they can be safe and we can keep them safe? And then if they are not, what are we going to do? How are we going to make sure that we have enough school nurses to take care of students who get sick or adults who get sick? What are we going to do when the parents come up to school, as they always do, uh, to make sure that our school secretaries are safe? Because they are the first ones they, they greet people coming from the outside. All of these things take time and they take resources to address, none of which, none of which our states and localities have right now. They're suffering. They're all suffering. And so we're depending on the federal government to do what's right and allocate the funding in the HEROES Act that the Congress passed last month. Becky Pringle, middle school science teacher, vice president, National Education Association. Bell's ringing for us, so we got to go. But Becky, thanks. With a surge of cases in parts of the country, many small businesses could have to close again. This comes as many are struggling to survive and recover from the first round of shutdowns. Can they survive a second round of closures if those come? Holly Wade, Director of Research and Policy at the National Federation of Independent Businesses. So Holly, what is a small business to do right now? It's a very difficult situation for many small business owners. Economic conditions continue to be unpredictable. 
for many as health concerns, as you've mentioned, have elevated and the increase in infection rates in many areas across the country. It's a major stress for many small business owners in how to navigate this. Well, and and I guess if we're all going to be frank, and I guess there's no reason not to be, um, sure. This this situation is not going to get better anytime soon, is it? I mean, we're going to see, you know, we're talking about 100,000 roughly businesses, small businesses that have already closed their doors for good. I dare say in another, what, half year, how many tens of thousands more will follow? Certainly. There will be many small business owners that will have to close. Right now, it's um, it's difficult to gauge whether they are permanent closures or temporary closures, if they can ramp up business operations. After we uh, navigate through this health crisis, you know, the speed of the recovery will depend on how quickly governments are able to reopen and stay open and how safe consumers feel about going back out and resuming more normal economic activity. Do you find that people who work for like big companies and large corporations forget how much of the economy is actually powered by the smaller businesses and how much of the economy is powered by the smaller businesses? Uh, small business sector is about half the economy. I think there's been a huge spotlight on the importance of the small business sector during this economic crisis, especially with the uh, Paychecks Protection Program that was hugely helpful for many to navigate the early stages of the shutdown, the stay-at-home orders, and many of the early restrictions that were placed on businesses, both essential and non-essential businesses. Um, But it does appear that small businesses will need further assistance to get through this crisis, as many states and even local communities are having to either suspend or or reverse some of those phase-in stages. Well, yes. I mean, for example, the extension on unemployment benefits, that I think comes to an end at the end of this month. Uh, Small business loans, Congress hasn't done a thing. In fact, isn't Congress on a recess right now? I believe they are. Yes, and there's $130 billion still left in the PPP loan program, as we call it. And that could be hugely helpful to be repurposed and directed towards those small businesses most negatively impacted. What are you calling for them to do besides use up the money that's already there? There needs to be more down the line. Does there need to be protection for people who can't pay their rent? Because if you're going to open up the shop again, you need to have a shop to open up. Sure, definitely. Well, thankfully, there were added flexibilities to the PPP loan program that allowed for more of the loan dollars to be forgiven and allocated towards rent and some utility payments instead of, you know, having it mostly focused on payroll, which was essential and helpful for keeping those employees connected to their jobs. But, you know, we're looking for Congress to be flexible and open, given the uncertainty in the economy, about making sure that small businesses are supported through the duration of this crisis. What are people telling you about how much longer they can hang on? Because we've seen so many restaurants and and other things do like a a very... ingenious side hustle or whatever it is. They're, they're packaging up meals, they're serving to businesses, they're doing big kits for the week, whatever they can do to scratch on by. But I guess you can only survive on that for so long. Absolutely. Small business owners have had to, you know, kind of enact survival mode instincts here to keep the doors open 
and adjust business operations to bet fit the new marketplace and the new consumer demands that are available. Um, but, you know, it is a precarious situation out there for many small business owners, and cash flow is a challenge in the best of times. So now that, um, you know, we're still in this for many areas of the country, this health crisis, you know, it's just going to continue to be very important to, you know, help small business owners navigate the challenges that they face. Holly Wade, Director of Research Policy, National Federation of Independent Businesses. The pandemic has been tough on just about everyone, whether you've gotten sick with the virus, lost a loved one, lost a job, or, well, we're just really bummed out. Things have changed so much in a few months that people are having a real hard time coping. Like we always say, it seems like the few months has been 72 years, right? Oh, I would have thought it was longer than that. <laughs> Stanley Green is the president of Power Thinking. He has built a career on helping people develop resiliency and positive thinking skills, some things that we could use right now. He talks to KYW's Carol McKenzie about how to retrain your brain to deal with the rough times. What I've found is that we have the power to rise to whatever level uh, that we set our minds to uh, to rising to, and we have the ability to bounce back from any adversity, minor adversities that we may experience on a daily basis, to these mega, uh, mega global uh, adversities that we're experiencing today. And so when I discovered this company many years ago called Reflective Learning that actually had the rights to the evidence-based material, I thought, wow, these inner strengths and skills or simply common sense, but the things that people just don't necessarily put together in a, in a cohesive framework to move them forward. So power thinking is all about uh, making this material available around the world. I've done this in China, in, in Tokyo, Japan, and in the United States with various companies, uh, and now with the general public. I think, um, Stanley, you know, when you're in this a kind of emotional stew when things are happening in your life that you didn't plan on, when you have these challenges and adversities, it can be overwhelming. And, you know, right now we're facing, you know, we're facing so much unrest and so much uncertainty. How do you, if you're feeling hopeless, how do you move beyond that, particularly if you've lost a job and you can't even meet your basic needs? How do you rise above that? and kind of develop these positive thinking skills? Sure. Well, there's uh, you know, specific skills that, that folks can, can, can move to immediately uh, when faced you know, with this kind of adversity. In fact, someone just emailed me, reached out to me over the weekend, and you know, I was invited him to uh, my calls uh, where we reinforced these skills, and he said, look, uh, he was so down and out. He said, there, you know, there's no positivity or negativity. They're only facts. He said, I'm not hireable. I'm too old. I'm spending my 401k now. And at some point, I'm going to lose my house. I have substandard health care. And I, I, at one point, I had a good life. Now I have a bad life. And I've made peace uh, with this fact that the previous life will never happen. But I haven't made peace with becoming poor. And this is what a number of people are experiencing in silence. Yeah. And the first thing that we have to recognize is that we're in a, in a really bad emotional state 
and we just need to calm ourselves down because when we have this, we can get very anxious. Uh, anxiety is one of the five big negative emotions that people experience. Uh, it is as a result of this fear of a future threat that we may be homeless and uh, that we'll never get back to where we were. And the, the best thing that we can do there is one of our seven skills of resilience um, start to build that. And that's calming and focusing. Take deep breath, three seconds in, six seconds out. And the other is putting things in perspective. Now, while all these things may be happening, the first thing we need to do when we get up in the morning is, is find uh, the things that we're grateful for. Hey, we still have uh, our health. We may still have our health. If we have a threat of losing the house, like my mother did uh, you know, way back, but there may be a way to turn that around. So we're still in the house, and as long as we're still in it, there may be a way to save it. You still have friends and family that love us. And then at night before going to bed, many times we're thinking, oh, this is, it's just getting worse and worse. The day was bad. But there are good things that happen during the course of the day. And so there are these three good things, three positive and powerful things that we need to kind of search for. And before going to bed, write those things down so that we don't wake up with, oh, get, this is going to be another horrible day. But wait a minute, there are a couple of things that happened. I made a phone call to someone who gave me some good advice as to be perhaps how I can save my house or maybe a couple of job leads. Or maybe this is an opportunity to have my own business because there are companies that will take you in that says, hey, if you want to do commission sales, we can help you do that. And uh, you can actually make more money than you ever thought you could make. Those opportunities are out there, but we need to calm ourselves down and focus and then, and then put things in perspective. Those are two of the, uh, of the very, very important skills, critical skills that people need to learn. Maybe we should all become potheads to fight the virus. That's why uh, college students are doing so well. Yeah. Well, hear us out on this. Scientists have started looking at marijuana as a possible treatment to help dangerous lung inflammation. Researchers say CBD has shown serious anti-inflammatory properties and increases the production of interferons, which activate immune cells and prevent viruses from replicating. Pot and CBD have not been tested on COVID-19 patients, but scientists are suggesting it's worth a serious look. Just try everything we can at this point, right? Yeah. You can listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Who would have thought my friends in high school were so ahead of the time? <laughs>